First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. This text has some difficult parts to it, so I want to make sure that we get the main thrust of it clear right at the outset, and then as we dig into some of the more difficult parts, maybe the uh, ambiguities or the uncertainties will not cause the, the big picture to lose its force. Now, to get the, the thrust and the big picture, I think we need to ask what leads into this text and how does Peter lead out of it? So let's notice the connections at the beginning at the end. Look at verse 17. That's the verse just before what Greg started to read. It is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. So he says there, sometimes God wills that Christians suffer when they've done nothing to deserve the suffering. Sometimes he wills that by doing right, we suffer. The next verse that Greg read was, For Christ also died, or literally, Christ also suffered for sins. And that little word for shows you that Peter is beginning to give an explanation or a basis or a ground for why it is that sometimes Christians have to suffer for Doing right. For Christ also suffered. So evidently, as he leads into this paragraph, 18 to 22, he's giving some reasons or some encouragement or some strengthening for why it is that the suffering of verse 17 is called for. Now, go to the end of the paragraph. Verse 22. You remember, there weren't any paragraph breaks in the early manuscripts, so just kind of drop that out of your mind and watch how it moves from verse 22 into chapter 4. Therefore, beginning of chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, since Christ has suffered, so here we are again talking about the sufferings of Christ, looking back, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same purpose. There it is again. We're back to verse 17 of chapter 3. Since Christ suffered, get that mindset, because that's the mindset of Christianity. That's the mindset of this epistle. So here's my conclusion about the big picture. This text, 18 to 22, of chapter 3, is intended by Peter 
to put some strong foundations and encouragements and strengthenings underneath the likes of verse 17 and the likes of verse 1. Namely, we Christians normally get into trouble for being Christians. And suffering of various kinds is our portion when we do right, not just when we do wrong. Now, if that's the thrust here, if that's what's going on in these verses, that's the question I'm going to be asking of every verse. How does it help get me ready for that kind of life? That's the question I'm going to be asking. Now, before we move into it, verse by verse, it may be that some of you, living like we all do in a fairly comfortable land, where to be a Christian now is not a very costly thing, might ask, um, well... Is, is that really relevant for where we live? And I suspect the reason we might be tempted to ask that is that we are so insulated in America, in our little 5% of the world's population, and our little American era of 300 years or so, which is about 5% of the last 6,000 years, in our teeny little experience we might be inclined to think that this is normal where we live and when we live. And in fact, we are not normal. If you take the whole world into account and you take all of history into account, the normal thing is when you become a Christian, things go bad. It is risky to become a Christian. That's normal if you take the whole world and all of history into account. I've been reading... Stephen Neal's History of Christian Missions. And when he gets to the end of the first three centuries and documenting why it was that the church grew like wildfire and virtually filled the Roman Empire in three or four centuries, this is one of the six things he says was the key. He said, every, quote, every Christian knew that sooner or later he might have to testify to his faith at the cost of his life. Just think of doing evangelism in that context. Think of what your booklets would look like. Think of what your sermons would sound like or your sharing would sound like in a context where you were summoning people into a relationship that they would need to know might cost them their lives. It would be a situation in which you couldn't sell the faith on how rosy things would go for you if you had just become a Christian. That's the way most of the world, most of history, has had to, to dispense Christianity. They've had to offer Christianity as a life-threatening religion. And it took over the Roman Empire under those terms. Now that is something to think about. That is something to think about. And to keep in your mind as you ask why Peter would try to strengthen us for that kind of life and ministry. In 1920, or in the 20s, Christianity in its evangelical form entered Cambodia. Till 1965, when all the Western missionaries were expelled, there were perhaps 600 believers. Between 1965 and 1975, during which time there was a terrible civil war, 
Estimates are as high as the growth of the church to 90,000 people in those 10 years. And then when Paul Pot and the Khmer Rouge took decisive power, most of them perished. If you go to Rwanda, most of us don't know the stories of revival in Rwanda. In the 1930s, the Spirit of God swept through Rwanda in the most remarkable way, and tens of thousands of people came to Christ. And then there was a, a fallow time and some nominalism. And then in the 60s, in recent decades, there has been great awakening in Rwanda. Who could estimate how many of God's children were hacked to death in these recent months? Most of the world in most of history has had to reckon with terrible suffering as Christians. Jesus said, and it's a sweeping statement without exception, you will be hated by all nations on account of my name. I was down with these mission executives, a couple hundred of them, and on Wednesday I stood up and the Lord just brought this text to mind and I said, how many of you guys have ever given a sermon on Matthew 24, 9 on the phrase pantata ethne? You know, the Greek phrase, all the nations. Hey, I'll raise a hand. I said, well, how about the phrase, you will be hated by pantata ethne? Have you ever preached a sermon on that? And that if there's yet one nation left that doesn't hate you, the Great Commission is not finished. There's more yet to be hated by. And it was this real silence that fell across the, the group. That does not mean that everybody will hate you. In fact, some will lay their lives down for you when you go to those nations. There will be a dividing. Jesus said when the gospel comes, a house is divided. Five against three and three against five. These will hate. These will love. These will embrace and die for you. These will try to kill you. In every nation, there are people waiting to hate you and love you. For the gospel, the same gospel, hated by some and loved by others. It's an amazing thing. And we in America today are in a time, it seems to me, when the Christian church, I'm almost tempted to say the Christian right, but it's broader than that, are in a very acrimonious, acerbic, mean-spirited mood. We're saying things like those liberal, humanistic, secular, relativist, cultural elites have taken away our country. We need to get it back by whatever means it takes. You know, that spirit is foreign to First Peter because First Peter says, why are you surprised when the fiery ordeal comes upon you? Why are you responding as though this were abnormal? And, of course, the answer is it is abnormal if you operate with 5% of history and 5% of the world, namely America. It isn't abnormal if you operate with all the world and all of history. Then it's real abnormal what we have experienced for the last 250 years, namely the normativity of Christian witness so that there's no cost almost. Well, if there comes to be a time when there's a cost to be a Christian in America, what we should do is become more like First Peter. We need to go back and read this book. There are other books for other times, but if the times change, this might be the book 
for these times and develop a way of responding to the enemies of the cross. That's a phrase from tonight's text, by the way. Differently than the kind of mood that seems to break out in real ugly ways. Well, here in this text, it seems to me that what Peter is doing is giving strength and encouragement and support for those of us who might now or in some future time be called upon to suffer for doing what is right. So let's look at five ways that this text strengthens us for that. Number one. He insists that we not forget that Christ, our great king and champion and leader and savior, suffered. Verse 17 and 18, let's put them together. It is better, if God should will it so, that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. For Christ also suffered. Let's stop right there because that's the first point. Be ready and willing to join him because he suffered. This is the mindset of the New Testament. You remember Paul from two Sunday nights ago? Oh, that I might know him and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's the mindset of early Christianity. Or Hebrews. He himself suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go with him outside the camp and bear his reproach. That's the mindset of early Christianity. Or Jesus himself, if anyone would come after me and follow me, let him deny himself and take up his instrument of execution, the cross, and follow me on the Calvary Road and go where I went. It's just the mindset of early Christianity. To come to Jesus, as Bonhoeffer said, was to come and die. And so his first argument is... Don't waver when you suffer because the one who started this whole movement, who holds it up, who bring it to consummation, was a sufferer, a martyr. Number two, Peter strengthens us to suffer by telling us that Christ triumphed over our greatest enemy and brought us safe to God. He triumphed over our worst enemy and he brought us safe to God. To God. Now, before I read you the text, ask this question. Why would anybody believe my evangelistic conversations if I have to offer them the risk of their life? Why would anybody want that? Because I think we Americans would, who are good salesmen, we, we're the best salesmen in the world. We would ask, you can't sell that. It doesn't market. The answer is... There are greater needs in human heart than living a long time and being comfortable for one zillionth percentage of your existence. There are greater needs than that. And when the Holy Spirit accompanies your evangelism, people's hearts open to those needs. And here they are. Need number one, the forgiveness for our sins and the cleansing of our consciences. Need number two, the overcoming of the awful alienation between us and God. You reading with me in Isaiah 59? God's hand is not shortened that he cannot save. 
nor is his ear dull that he cannot hear, but your sins and iniquities have made a separation between you and God. That's the biggest need in the world. There's a separation. And third, the need for eternal life. Escaping the awful wrath and judgment of God in hell and entering into the joy of our Lord and being at home with the Father forever and ever. When the Holy Spirit comes upon your evangelism, you can tell the whole truth, even the cost, and He will open the hearts of people to say, Yes, I'd be willing to die if I could get forgiveness for my sins. If I could have the alienation with God overcome, if I could live forever with Him, I would enter onto that religion and pay anything. We in America have lowered the standards of truth and evangelism so low that we think the only way we can get anybody to be saved is to tickle them everywhere they itch, which is usually not at the root. And so I plead with you to join with me in praying the Holy Spirit down right now on this service. There are people in this room probably that need Christ who are not born again. The text from which I'm getting this is verse 18. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. That's a great verse. Memorize that verse for your soul and for your evangelism. Four things. Notice four things. Christ died for sins. We've seen that. It's our sins that are making a separation between us and God. He died for those sins. That's the greatest enemy. When I said the greatest enemy has been overcome, I don't mean Satan. Satan is not your greatest enemy. Satan can only hurt you through your sin. If you have no sin or if Christ covers your sin, Satan cannot destroy you. Satan is not your worst enemy. Sin is your worst enemy. I have these four S's that I pray for my family all the time. I get down on my knees at night and I say, oh, Lord, protect us this night and tomorrow morning from sin and Satan and sickness and sabotage. And I mean them in that order. Sin is the biggest enemy of my sons, not Satan. If their sins are forgiven and they're hiding by faith in Jesus, I'd hand them over to Satan any minute. And he can do anything he wants with them. Kill them and they'd be safe. Satan is not our number one enemy. Sin judges and brings us into condemnation. It's the sin problem that must be solved. Satan will fall when we are redeemed. The second observation in this verse is he is the just for the unjust. The way he covers our sin and solves our sin problem and overcomes our alienation from the father is that he is the substitute, the just one. Like the kids were singing. Oh, that's great, Mike. What a great song. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. Oh. 2 Corinthians 5.21, learn it, sing it, believe it, live in the power of it. That's the gospel. It is so glorious that there was an innocent one and he bore all my wrath, all my judgment, all my guilt. He drained the cup of wrath 
dry so that in the cup of God's wrath toward me, there's not a drop left. Not a drop. So that if I suffer, this is why it's so relevant to suffering. If I suffer and Satan tempts me, ha, he's mad at you. He's going to get you. God hates you. He wouldn't let you die like this. He wouldn't let you suffer like this. He wouldn't let the kids go bad like that. He wouldn't let you lose your job. He wouldn't let you get sick. He wouldn't let people reject you. He hates you. You go to this verse and you say, no way. The just for the unjust. I'm the unjust. He's the just. He took my place. He drained the cup of wrath dry. What he's experiencing, what I'm experiencing right now, is not the wrath of my father. It may be fatherly discipline fitting me for heaven, but it is not his wrath and condemnation. And that's a great need in the midst of suffering to fight like that. The third observation from this verse is... He did it once for all. That means it was so all-sufficient, so final, so complete, so perfect that it can't happen again. He's gone back. He took his seat at the right hand of the Father. He never has to suffer again. It is one sacrifice. And when we look to the solution for our sin problem, we don't look to a mass. And we don't look to any kind of penance. We look to the cross finished once for all. He paid it in full and it is over and we hide in it and we preach to ourselves that it's done. And the fourth observation from this verse is this precious one that I heard in Greg's prayer. So it obviously moved him as he was getting ready in order that he might bring us to God. That is so precious. We were so far from God, so alienated, so dirty, so undeserving, so hostile to God, like some of you probably are right now. And because of Jesus interposing his precious blood, the power in the blood that I heard Mike ministering to me with, that power bridged this awful chasm cleansed my conscience, imparted to me the righteousness of Christ, brought me into the very holy of holies where only the Holy One can go, and united me to the Father with a big smile upon His face so that I am at home with Him now. And that is precious. That, by the way, under the blessing of the Holy Spirit, sells even at the cost of life. That's the first and second big way that Peter is using these verses to strengthen us in suffering. Suffering tempts us to believe that God is against us. Verse 18 is designed to show us that God is for us in Jesus. The third way these verses strengthen us in suffering is by referring to Noah's day. Now here the difficulties begin. Let's read it, and I'll show you my interpretation of these verses, which I do not claim infallibility for, but I believe to be right, and I believe to be helpful in suffering. Verse 19, in which, that is, in the spirit in which he was raised, in which he also, Christ also, went and made proclamation to the spirits. Now in prison. I paused there. Because I don't think Jesus went to the prison. I think Jesus went to the spirits when they were living and because they resisted his present ministry are now in prison. 
who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that's going to be important, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. Now, there's a lot of controversy around these verses. Uh, I'm taking an interpretation here that uh, has a long tradition against it. This is one of the verses from which the Apostles' Creed gets the phrase, Christ descended into hell. And some of the Apostles' Creeds, you know, leave that out, put a little footnote, because they're just not so sure that's biblical. Well, I'm not so sure it's biblical either, though if it is, I have no problem, no doctrinal quibble with it. I'm just not sure that's what this verse teaches. In fact, I think it's not. Here's what I think the verse teaches. I think he is saying that in the Spirit... You know, when Jesus died, he said to the thief on the cross, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, his body was lying in the tomb when he said that. Today, you're going to be with me in paradise. So, the minute after he was dead, he was alive in the spirit, in paradise with this dead thief. Isn't that great? Two spirits in heaven. I told you so. Isn't this great? Can you believe that I can do that? I can save a, a sinner who's never done the right thing in his life in the last second of his death. Isn't that great? And that guy's on his face, loving Jesus. Now, in this spirit, he says, in this spirit, he goes and he preaches to the spirits who now are in prison. But when did he go to them? It doesn't say clearly that he went to them in prison. That's a possibility. If I'm wrong, I'll apologize to Jesus for this sermon. But I think he means back when Noah was preaching, Jesus was preaching. And he was making the call to repentance plain through Noah. And many people were scoffing and resisting him. And they perished and went into prison. Hades. Now, why do I think that? Because two reasons. I mean, there are others, but I'll mention two. Back in chapter 1, verse 11, we already know that the Spirit of Jesus was there in the Old Testament preaching through the prophets. It says so right there in the verse. The Spirit of Jesus was predicting through the prophets in the Old Testament what glories were to come and the sufferings thereafter, or the sufferings and the glory thereafter. So we know in Peter's thinking, Jesus was there in the Old Testament ministering through the words of righteous people. So I'm all set and primed to know that the Jesus that I know and love, who was incarnate before he was incarnate, also was present in preaching in the Old Testament. The second reason is this. If the verse means that Jesus went to the place of the dead and proclaimed his triumph over sin and Satan to all the dead, why does it say who were disobedient in the days of Noah? Because most, most of them weren't. They were disobedient in the days of Abraham and disobedient in the days of David and disobedient in the days of Malachi and disobedient in the days of Maccabees. And it, it doesn't work. It doesn't it doesn't sound right. He, he, he's talking about a, a certain number, a, a few spirits whom he had preached to who are now in prison, namely those who were alive in the days of Noah. He's picking out Noah for some reason as an illustration here. And that's what we're going to look at. Why? And uh, saying, Jesus preached through Noah, they resisted and disobeyed, they are now in prison. Now, why does, he, why does he bring that in? What's the point? In view of the big issue of preparing to suffer. Three ways. 
three reasons I think he does this. One, it shows the greatness of Christ in that he's not bound by space and time. He was there then. He's here now. He'll be there in the future. He never... There never was a time when he wasn't and there never will be a time when he won't be. And he's here. And, and not only that, he's not bound by by space. Everywhere our, our missionaries are today, everywhere they are suffering and everywhere the church is suffering. China, Guinea, Congo, Bangkok, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Japan, Papua New Guinea, Siberia, Zaire, um, Philippines, Ivory Coast. Austria, Cyprus, Germany, Minneapolis, all the places where Bethlehem is. He's there right now, working, just like here. He was there, he's here, he will be. That's the first thing that comforts us in suffering. There is no place where we're abandoned by him. The second thing here is that there's a warning. It says there were those people in Noah's day who heard Noah preaching, the righteous one. We can read that in Second Peter as well. And through him, the spirit of Jesus, and they are disobedient, it says. They, they disobeyed Jesus. Result, prison. And there is no getting out of that prison. There's a great gulf fixed, according to Luke 16. Nobody can go from there to here or here to there. And that's a terrifying thought. That's a terrifying thought. That if you die resisting Jesus, there is no getting out of the prison of torment. And so the point here is... If you think it's bad to suffer now for Jesus, think again about what's coming after you die forever. And the third way that this verse encourages us to suffer is in verse 20. It says, in the ark, a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Eight. Just eight a few. What's the point? The point is he's writing to Christians who in a, a huge Roman Empire are nobodies. Absolute zeros as far as the Roman Empire is concerned. There are no laws protecting them. They are totally at the mercy of the uh, dictator. And he says, look, don't ever let numbers guide your feelings. Don't ever make judgments about whether you're on the right path by how many are behind you. Only make the judgments on the basis of the truth and the spirit. Because there was a day when only eight people were saved. And they live forever with Jesus and everybody else is in prison. Just think of it. Don't, this text just screams out. Watch out for your love of numbers. Watch out for making judgments about the success of any movement in terms of its numbers. Eight people were right, and everyone else was wrong. The fourth way that Peter now strengthens us to suffer is to look at the meaning of baptism. Here's another controversial text. I'll do my best with it. Verse 21. Corresponding to that, namely the flood. So he's just talked about the flood. The waters of judgment come over the world. And now he says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 18 said... That Christ suffered 
for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God, which means Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us. Jesus saves us. But who's us? That's the question. Who's us? And that's what verse 21 answers. Us is the baptized. Now, Peter is as aware as you are of the danger of that statement. Ritualism. Legalism. Externalism. Belittling of faith as the way to Christ. He's very aware. We don't have to bring a lot of theology here and say, whoa, wait a minute, don't say that. Don't, 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 don't say that baptism saves you. All you have to do is let Peter do his own qualifying here. He says, baptism saves you, and then he qualifies with a negative and a positive. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh. Now, we've got a baptismal pool. I'm standing on it right here. We take these woods off, piece of wood, and we fill this with water. And people walk in there, and they go all the way under the water, and I let them down and bring them up again. And the water touches every square inch of their body. Nothing is excluded. And in a sense, there is a cleansing on the outside. And Peter says, I know that happens. That's not the point. That's not what saves Baptism does not save by virtue of its external contact with water or its external cleansings. That's the negative. The positive is, how then does it save? It saves insofar as it is an appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God for a good conscience. That is, a prayer offered up to God for cleansing. When that happens, salvation happens. It says in Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. This text says, if you appeal to God, this is the call, if you appeal to God for a clear conscience, you will be saved. And then it says, baptism is one of those ways by which you express that appeal to God. So here's the way I see it happening. And there's a lot of you probably in this room right now who, who have not been baptized by immersion as a believer. When we do it, I just want to explain to you the meaning that it has now. So you can be praying earnestly about whether what I'm saying here is true and has a relevance in your life. And you should come on in and be baptized. When we fill this with water and the candidates sit in that pew over there with their crimson robes on, symbolizing the blood of Christ that is upon them. And they step into the water here. What I think everyone should be saying, and in as much as we've taught them well, are saying is something like this. Oh, Father. I'm now facing judgment. The waters of judgment that covered the earth and killed everybody. The waters of judgment that covered Jesus and buried him and killed him. And I am so thankful that Jesus bore that judgment for me. And what I am doing now is identifying with him because he bore that judgment for me. And I am going to die under that water with him now. And I appeal to you that you would cleanse me, cleanse me through Jesus by his blood under this water as I die with him. 
And as I come out of the water and they put in, put on me that white robe over here to symbolize the purity, I thank you for what you have wrought in my life. Now the transaction there is a spiritual transaction happening by the believing heart, appealing to God for cleansing, and happening by the sovereign grace of God, cleansing. Now, technically speaking, for every one of them, they have already made that appeal either a week or a month or a year or five or ten years earlier and are just now being brought to the point of expressing it symbolically through baptism. But it is real. Just as much as any of us right now call upon the Lord for cleansing and lay hold on him as our Savior, baptism is a laying hold on Jesus as our Savior. And therefore is a great significance in our faith. And the Lord taught us all to do it. In suffering, if you ask, well, how does all that relate to suffering? Just like this. Baptism stands in my life as a little 11-year-old boy and in all those who've been baptized as a constant witness and reminder that the judgment is past. It's past. I died. I'm dead. <laughs> Go ahead. If you think by suffering you can do me any damage at all, if you think killing me is a big deal, I will remember my baptism. I'm a dead man. I'm a dead man. And in Jesus, all my sins are taken care of. And he brought me to newness of life that he said will never, ever end. The judgment that I am deserving as a sinner came upon Jesus. I identified with him in baptism. He rose. I rose. I'm home free. He has brought me home to God. That's the kind of thinking and feeling you need when suffering comes. One last brief way that Peter strengthens us for suffering, for doing what's right. Verse 22, he tells us, shows us that God's Son rules over all spiritual powers. Let's read the verse. He is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subject to him. Which means this, no harassing, no tormenting, no oppressing, no accusing evil spirit or demon is free to do in your life what he wants to do. You believe that? Satan, principalities, powers, world rulers of this present darkness, spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, all angels are not free. They are subject under the foot of Jesus Christ. That's what this verse says. They are subject. They are under his foot. His foot is on the neck of Satan. They cannot do what he does not permit them to do. The end of this book, First Peter, has a verse that says, Take heed. Your enemy, adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him firm in your faith. Faith in what? Verse 22 of chapter 3. 
If you've ever wondered as you read that verse, resist him firm in your faith. Faith in what? What do I believe when Satan is tormenting me? When he's after me? When he's oppressing me and harassing me? What do I believe? You believe that Jesus Christ rose from the dead triumphant over all the angels, all the principalities, all the powers, all of Satan, all of darkness. His foot is on their neck and you take that truth and you hold it right in Satan's face and you say, you are a cat on a leash. And God can let your leash long or he can make your leash short, but you are not free in my life. I am in Jesus Christ. I am clothed by faith with his righteousness and he is over you, triumphant. You cannot touch me except to the degree that he lets you touch me. And if he, my king and sovereign over you, lets you touch me, it is for my holiness and for his glory. So have at it, Satan. I'm a free man. That's what happened in 2 Corinthians 12 with the thorn of the flesh. Throw it back at him. Believe this truth and stand firm, believers. Stand firm this morning in your faith. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. And he said, follow me. Let's pray. Oh, Father. These verses are exploding with gospel joy, power, liberty. And I pray right now against the devil, who Jesus said is sometimes like a bird, who swoops down after a worship service and plucks the word right out of the heart. Oh, God. Before we walk out of this room, would you now cover the seed with good soil? Would you now water it quickly and even now be making the roots to sink down and touch the deep parts of the human heart so that it won't be plucked out this afternoon as people turn to other things? And would you claim for yourself some lost sinners this morning? And would you strengthen every saint for the suffering that is coming? I bless you, Father, for these truths and ask that you'd make them real in our lives as a church. And all the people said, Amen.